Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now my guest today is Law Lecturer in Waterford Institute of Technology, Jennifer Cavanagh, and we're going to discuss the long-running saga of the Ian Bailey case. The case is topical at the moment as the High Court this week heard an application by the state to extradite Mr Bailey to France. Ian Bailey, as many of you may know, was a suspect in the Sophie Tuscan du Plantier murder in West Cork in 1996. The DPP has repeatedly found that he has no case to answer. Uh, he was arrested soon after the murder and he was arrested a year later. He was investigated a number of times and the file was examined by the DPP a number of times. And on each occasion, the director has decided that he does not have a case to answer to the extent that no charges are to be brought against him. In France, they have a very different attitude. They have conducted their own investigation into Miss Duplantier's murder. They have done so under an old law from at the time of Napoleon, which allows them to investigate the violent death of any French citizen in another country. To that end, they began their investigations. They got cooperation with the Gardaí here. Uh, some French investigators visited this country, visited West Cork, and some Gardaí have gone over to France to assist them with their investigations. As a result of those investigations, then they issued a European arrest warrant looking for Mr Bailey to be extradited to France. That was back in 2010. Two years later, the Irish courts finally decided that Mr Bailey would not be extradited. Uh, the French tried a second time in 2017 and again the High Court decided that he would not be extradited. Then, last May, France went ahead and put Mr Bailey on trial for murder in Paris. He didn't attend that trial. He was tried in absentia. He has said that the proceeding was a farce and something of a show trial. I attended the trial myself for the Irish Examiner and I covered it and we can come to the details of that later. In any event, at the end of the week-long trial, he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Some weeks later, the French applied for the third time to have him extradited, this time on the back of that guilty verdict. The ultimate outcome of that process was the hearing this week to determine whether or not he should now be handed over. There will be a result, I would suggest, by the end of the month, most likely. The courts closed down then for a while, but I think we might have by the end of the month. One way or the other, the chances are it'll be appealed to the Court of Appeal and possibly, ultimately, to the Supreme Court. Now, just to put things in a small bit of context in terms of the case we have here, the features to it. As I say, it all began in 1996. Mr Bailey first arrested in February 1997. Since then, we've had things such as a libel action taken by Ian Bailey against seven major uh, media outlets, most of them newspapers. 
there's been a major internal Garda inquiry as to how the Garda conducted themselves in the case because of allegations that things were not done properly in some instances. There's been a tribunal of inquiry arising out of the discovery of recordings in Bandon Garda station in relation to the case. There has also been one of the longest running civil actions in the history of the state taken by Mr Bailey, which ultimately was unsuccessful in. And finally, there's been this murder trial in Paris. So we're talking about, I think it's fair to say, an unprecedented case, an unprecedented actions against one individual. He would claim, and, and some people would claim, that he's been the victim of something of a witch hunt. On the other side of the scales, we have the family of Miss Duplantier. They're convinced that Mr Bailey has a case to answer. They've been prominent in, I think it's fair to say, in pushing the authorities in France towards following, as they see it, the wheel of justice, you could say. So there's an awful lot of people involved in this and there's an awful lot of people who have a lot of issues around it and around the way various aspects of it have been handled. Jennifer, that's the background to the whole thing and we'll go over some of the legal aspects to it. But first of all, just in terms of this week's proceedings and the extradition, I think it's fair to say, Jennifer, that by and large, extradition between EU countries is an uncomplicated affair and bar something very extraordinary, people are simply handed over if another country is looking for them. Yeah, well, there'll always be a process, say, where the warrant has to be endorsed by the country where they have the individual that they want. And that's just to ensure that everything has been done correctly, the proper checks and balances are there. But with the European arrest warrant, it's basically a system whereby one country asks for another uh, and has gone through their own legal process and the process in the other country. And it, it is supposed to be far more straightforward than just individual countries with no sort of, um, say, like an EU or African Union or even like America, because in between the different states in America, you do have your different borders between the different states. So. It should be a simple process, but as the Mbaini situation showing that what you think may be simple can turn into a very complex, unwieldy and long running process. And in general terms, because I was down at the Ian Bailey hearing, Jennifer, and I just, you know, I happened to see a few other cases coming up. For instance, there was one whereby there was uh, an individual and there was, uh, he, he had um, challenged a European, well, yeah, it's to be European arrest warrant with the UK, I presume, because this would have started prior to Brexit kicking in. To Northern Ireland, there was one, there was another man off to the Czech Republic and I believe there are a number involving Eastern European countries because of the uh, large population we have here of Eastern European people. But the, the European arrest warrant system, prior to that coming into being, as I understand it now, and you tell me, that people would only be extradited if charges were already preferred. But is it possible under the European arrest warrant system to apply for extradition, even though you haven't charged an individual with something in, in the recipient country? Well, see, normally, even for arrest and detention here, you don't just arrest people to question them. There has to be a, a solid basis to why they want to restrict someone's liberty. And that would be stopping them from, say, travelling out of the country or taking them to another country and that's probably not where they want to go. So there has to be a strong weight of evidence there, even if you are just arresting someone because if somebody just walks into a Garda station, 
to help with queries, they can say, right, you can't leave. You have to be arrested. So before the European arrest warrant would come down to, you would hear of extradition treaties and certain people going to certain countries because there is no extradition treaty between, say, you know, it could be somewhere in South America and somewhere in Europe that people would actually pick and choose on that basis. Right. And there was a case there, I think it was last year, in term, in Poland, there, there was somebody due to be extradited here to Poland. They're a member of the EU. And the High Court judge involved, I think, put a stay on it because she had some concerns about the independence of the judiciary in Poland. We People may know there's been political changes there and there are suggestions that there's interference in the independence of the judiciary there. But then it went to the Supreme Court here and they ultimately decided that whereas some there might have been some laws that affected the independence of the judiciary in Poland, it wasn't enough to stop an extradition. So the, the, the individual was ultimately, as far as I know, sent back. So what I'm getting at, Jennifer, is it is unusual, isn't it, within the EU for a country not to accede to a, a European arrest warrant. Yeah, and what that comes down to is the central core of the independence of the judiciary when they're making a determination on the, on the guilt or innocence of an individual. Now, European countries would be signed up to, say, the European Convention on Human Rights, which is separate to the EU, but it's a parallel system with the Council of Europe. And that would ensure that people can get a fair trial. And if there isn't a fair trial or any query over a fair trial, be it domestically in Ireland or looking at bringing someone to a different jurisdiction within Europe, those fundamental human rights basics have to be there. I mean, we've had um, cases thrown in jeopardy in Ireland where they might think, say, the jury may not be impartial. But if the judiciary, who are the professional lawyers, and have gone through all that training, if there's any question over their independence or their motivations, then that is something that can be a bar to extradition for that individual going over. Yeah, and I suppose going back to the troubles uh, in this country, uh, troubles as we call them, uh, typically in, <laughs> we, we, we make understatements. I mean, there was an awful lot of killing and bombing going on, but in any event, there was big issues then, wasn't there, about extraditing some suspects to uh, the UK from here I'm thinking in particular there was a priest Father Patrick Ryan and the courts wouldn't extradite him on the basis that it was for allegedly political crimes and they felt he wouldn't get a fair trial They'll never extradite for political reasons and I mean with the North you've had a number of different cases that have questioned the, the whole extradition system because for example Ireland at one stage was as we know, the old Articles 2 and 3 was saying that the whole island was actually the island of Ireland and therefore the laws extended. So under the old Articles 2 and 3, you could have that question of, well, how do you mean you're extraditing me to Northern Ireland? Sure, you don't even recognise Northern Ireland under the Constitution. So there was all those extra bits in it when we had the troubles as to what actually is the story with the six counties. Are they... Are they part of Ireland because of the way that we had it written in the constitution or are we recognising the, the, the treaty when it came to the border so that was a whole that, that was a whole legal creation of its own just from the way that those things were drafted Well, yeah, Just on a similar note while we're talking about the general area now in, in light of Brexit are we going to have a different relationship with the UK in terms of um, potentially extraditing people there or are they extraditing people here? Well, there is extraditions happen between both jurisdictions and it's one of those things that remains to be resolved with, with Brexit. I would say that 
because we will be more integrated with the EU, that'll be a case of a deal will have to be done between Britain and the EU. They, when it comes to to all those kind of things with with us using the um, European extradition warrants, um, it would be more likely it'll be something that they will have to negotiate with the EU than us on an individual basis. Because look, when it comes to everything with the border, we could have just gone up to Belfast and had the chats with the crowd in London and sorted a lot of stuff out. But we, we couldn't because of the formalistic legal arrangements that are there. Yeah, and I suppose you'd have to assume notwithstanding hard Brexit and various issues around trade and that you'd have to guess that in the area of the likes of extradition for alleged criminal offences, it's most likely they'll have they'll align fairly closely to um to the rest of Europe, I would have thought. We'll hope, because there's still we- so much to be sorted out with Brexit and they're definitely going now, so they can't even pull back for a while and say, Can you hang on there now? We get a few treaties sorted out. That's not gonna happen. Yeah, it'd be very interesting, all right, if if, if things change in that regard in any way. Brexit is just too interesting. That's the problem. Nobody knows yeah. what's happening anymore. <laughs> well, pr- particularly, I mean, as you say, we're part of the EU, but we we still will have freedom of movement with the UK so people can come back and forth. So in, in terms of anybody of a criminal nature, it'd be interesting to see whether they'll find any loopholes in terms of relations between the uh, the two jurisdictions. But in general terms, Jennifer, what we're saying, I think, is it's fair to say that generally uh, within the EU, extradition is a relatively straightforward affair because there are particular standards in terms of criminal justice systems that people have to have to be a member state anyway. So by and large, um, people are extradited when requested. Yes. Now, you know, if if everyone was being stopped, the whole European arrest warrant would have just completely have fallen by the wayside by this stage. But the mere fact that it's lasting so long would suggest that uh, it is working. Every system needs tweaks and everything will improve with its usage. But they're still going, so they must be still working pretty well. Okay, and so then we come to the scenario in 2012. Now, I think initially an application was made in 2010 to have Ian Bailey extradited, and this was for the first time. They referred to it down the court the moment as Bailey 1. They referred to this case. But in any event, Ian Bailey was arrested at a European arrest warrant to have him extradited to France because France was investigating this murder and they wanted to question him. Now, the issues that arose in that case first was in terms of the law under which France was investigating him. As I said, it was this uh, law from um, the time of Napoleon in which if a French person was uh, a victim of homicide outside France, the French uh, retained the right, as far as they were concerned, to investigate it. And that's the law under which they investigated the murder of Sophie Tuscan Duplantier. And that was the law under which they were hoping to have him extradited. But the Supreme Court, no, sorry, I should say, the High Court initially agreed to his extradition on that occasion. But the Supreme Court said no. And one of the reasons was that we have no equivalent law here. That's the case, Jennifer, isn't it? Yeah, well, that all comes down to, say, some states have what they call universal jurisdiction on some matters. So, for example, piracy, Belgium can deal with the case no matter where it happened. But in international law, you know the way people make the jokes of if somebody's killed in Antarctica, who's actually going to prosecute? And they'd be saying, well, who's going to be murdered? Only penguins. 
But the way it operates is that if an Irish citizen was to be killed in Antarctica, then it would be the the Irish law that would prevail on the investigation, where that's where you're dealing with a situation where there is no law. So say, for example, if on the International Space Station one astronaut murdered another, it would be the jurisdiction of the deceased astronaut that would be the one that would investigate it. But the problems that, that arose here was mainly that the French were trying to extradite him for a crime that, commit, that was committed on Irish soil. So therefore, it's not like international waters. There is actually a legal system that is, that is there in that place that should be given the, the primacy to investigate that. And the other issue that they had as well was that at that stage was more a case of we want to bring him over and ask him a few questions. Well, the obvious answer is, well, that's why don't you hop on the flight to Cork and come over here and ask him a few questions. We don't think it's right to hand over an individual to another country when all you want to do is question them that there is not, say, the sufficient standards to say yet to arrest that individual for, for that for that crime. Yeah, that that's interesting. So I, I never realised that. That, for example, as you say, Antarctica, to take that example, if an Irish person was killed in Antarctica, it's Irish law would apply, but the same does not apply, for example, if an Irish person was killed anywhere where there is yeah, it's the, the fallback to ensure that there's always going to be justice for an individual. And actually, this has happened because on the International Space Station, there is a case where an astronaut has been accused of hacking into her partner's bank account. They were estranged, but she was on doing her online banking on the International Space Station. Her excuse was that she was just checking to see that there was enough money in the account for the day-to-day expenses, but apparently she didn't have authorization to be in there. So that's the way it works. There always has to be a legal system that can ensure that there is justice, even where you don't think there's going to be a legal um, a legal system. So, for example, if you're on an Air Lingus flight, it's an Irish carrier, therefore it's Irish law will be on that. So they always want to ensure there's some way of things to be investigated, prosecuted, and ensure that there is an effective legal system. But at the same time, the French law in which they claim the right to investigate the death of a French person in another recognised jurisdiction, that's pretty unusual, isn't it? It's not now. And this is one of the issues that's actually coming up in the Bailey case. So France was saying, wherever one of our citizens is killed, we have that option to go in and investigate whether you like it or not. Ireland didn't have the same thing. So if an Irish person was killed in Paris and there was a similar chain of events in progress that the Irish Guardi wouldn't be wouldn't have been able to go over and do the same thing. So all of international law is based on this principle that no matter who you are, whether you're America or you're Samoa or you're Ireland or you're Argentina, everyone should be able to do the same thing to each other. So if it wasn't possible for Ireland to do what France was doing, it's an automatic block. So there has to be a balance on both sides. And actually, it's something that goes through the whole framework of law that there has to be there has to be a situation that if the shoe was on the other foot, would they be able to do the same thing? And if you can't do the same thing and there isn't that balance, then that automatically is, no, we're not sending people over for that, for that to happen. So, for example, if you wanted to extradite someone 
So you wanted an extradite an Irish redhead to a country where being a redhead is actually illegal, but being a redhead is part of our genetic heritage in Ireland. They couldn't, they wouldn't be able to extradite them because that offence would not be known to Irish law. So they literally have to be mirror image systems. So one can map onto the other one. And therefore you have that continuity of the legal principle going through the jurisdictions. I'm with you, but the, 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 the concept, though, Jennifer, of having the right to investigate the debt abroad of one of your citizens, is that something that other countries, apart from France, practice to the best of your knowledge? I mean, obviously, we don't have it here. I mean, Yeah, here, we've I mean. actually started it now in Ireland. So right. that's the Criminal Law Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act 2019, which is causing some of the legal argument in the case at the moment. So extraterritorial means that anything outside of your borders can be investigated. So if nowadays it would be possible for Ireland to kind of push out the Gardaí to say, look, things are happening here now, we need to get our people there because they're, they seem to be mucking it up in the other jurisdiction. Now, that specifically, if you look through that piece of legislation, it's actually referring an awful lot to the Istanbul Convention, which is all to protect women against violence. So say, for example, if uh, children were being taken abroad without parental consent by the other parent or women were being brought to different countries, say, for arranged marriages, things like that, that would allow for Ireland to be a lot more proactive in this area. But this is what they're using now to say that if something is a crime in, in Ireland and it happens abroad, now we can actually do something about it. So that mirror image of the legal principle is now what is actually there going across the jurisdictions. So originally, in 2012, as you said already, the Supreme Court, when they rejected the first warrant, they said the French had no intention to try him, which was correct at the time, but circumstances have now moved on. He has been put through a legal process in France, even though he was not there, was not involved with it. And they also said that there was no reciprocity with the way that they could prosecute the crime. But that is also gone now as well with that 2019 Act coming in. That's very interesting, yeah. So we could get to a stage, for example, uh, an Irish person in Germany or Spain or whatever uh, were they to meet uh, violent and end whereby uh, we weren't satisfied that it was being investigated properly there, then we could send over... The Gardaí, and it would be interesting as well to see the kind of reception they'd get in some uh, some countries. So that, that's moving in that direction. The other interesting thing there, Jennifer, is in terms of the French law, there there is um, there's a small bit of form there because a number of years ago, and I came across this case, there was a German man, I think he was a doctor, a German man who was considered to be responsible for killing, I think it was his partner wife who was French in Germany. And what happened there was... The family of the deceased woman arranged, it, it emerged later, for the kidnap of this man. He was kidnapped in Germany. He was bound up and he was literally left outside the door of a courtroom in France. So then they had him on French territory. And following that, he was actually put on trial and convicted. I think it may have been of the manslaughter of that woman and handed a prison term. The people who were responsible for his kidnapping, I think, were ultimately charged as well. But it was interesting to the extent that once they had this individual on French soil, irrespective of how he got there, they went and put him on trial for 
that uh, homicide of a French citizen abroad. Oh, that I mean that that has happened. Um, there's been numerous situations where people have been bound up, thrown in the back of a plane or thrown in the back of a boot, and they find themselves in the, the last jurisdiction they would want to be in. So it does happen, of course, if if it's a case that, uh, as in the example you gave, that there was a criminal act involved in getting the person across the borders, then absolutely there there could be a subsequent investigation there of what they did. Now, you mentioned that 2011 Supreme Court ruling. The other aspect to that, that at the time was that I think the court found that Ian Bailey, one other reason why he couldn't be extradited was under the laws that existed at the time, he was an ordinary resident in this country, but he was actually a subject of the British Crown. They don't have citizens in the UK. So they couldn't extradite him effectively because he was from a third country, even though that was also an EU country. So if, for example, he had been Irish at that time, an Irish citizen, they could have extradited him. But because he was British, even though he was resident here, they couldn't extradite him. That element of the law, I think, has also been changed in uh, the legislation you referred to that came into effect last year. Yeah, yeah. So it's possibly the 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 most technical individual you could try and apply these laws to. <laughs> yeah, I very very much so in that regard. No, so that changes the goalposts effectively. The other thing that arises with the Ian Bailey case, as I said, this is the third time they've tried to extradite him. That 2012 Supreme Court judgment was the first time. In 2017, it came back before the High Court. At this stage, I think they had decided they were going to put him on trial over there. But the High Court judge threw out this application and under what's described as an abuse of process. That, presumably, Jennifer, is on the basis that they'd already tried to do it and you can't keep going over the same thing again and again and trying to get a different result. Yeah, that completely, because... The thing is, people have their own opinions of different people who are before the law. And from the perspective of the law, it, it doesn't matter who the individual is. It doesn't matter whether it's Santa or the devil. That legal principles have to be uphold, upheld. And upholding those is actually the most important thing. So whether you like the person or not, it really doesn't matter. But any person who has been continually subjected to case after case, extradition attempt after ex- after extradition attempt, there has to be a place where the law just goes, stop, we've had enough. Because this individual cannot live their life constantly thinking, am I going to be arrested? Am I going to be um, arrested again? When it all keeps moving the whole time. That if you think of up in Donegal, the way that there was a, one individual up there, that there was a number of charges constantly being put against that individual, which ended up in its own tribunal as well. That if, for example, you happen to be that person who's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and like you're totally innocent of what happened, you in fact have no idea what happened. But somebody has this idea that ah, it was you, it was always you, and we're going to make sure that you're the one who's got for the crime. That that's that's a total abuse of process because it's using the law to bully or intimidate an individual. And in the Constitution, it says that all trials have to be done in due, co- in due process of law. And that means that if you've been put on trial, you've been found not guilty, that's it. Unless there's absolute substantial new evidence, say, for example, DNA discoveries, things like that come in. And a court has to test that first to ensure that you're just not going after them for the crack again. So 
what's really important that no matter what's changed with the laws or things like that, you really have to go back to, and this is generally the way that it's done, you go back to what were the laws that were there at the time when the, say, the crime was committed or a breach of a contract or whatever. You can't create, keep creating new laws every time to try and change the goalpost to get some that you wanted to get back 20 years ago. So that is a really important point that has to be made that, you know, people have like the, the whole of West Cork has their own ideas of what happened at this stage and possibly the whole Western seaboard. But at the end of the day, you have to ensure that the law that is there is being used properly and that it's not being used as a tool to continually go after one person who happens to be public enemy number one at the time. Yeah, well, public enemy number one certainly was in the minds of some people. I mean, other people, and, and, and I think it's also fair to say that the way things evolved over the years, and particularly there was a situation whereby there was one person who gave evidence, who was regarded as being a witness, who cast Mr. Bailey in a very poor light. She changed her evidence completely, so people's opinions and the whole thing would have changed over the years. But I, I the, the point you're making there exactly, and so as a result... They're coming back now for two reasons. First of all, there has been that change of the law, which has nothing to do with this specific case, but it's an EU law that, in terms of what you were referring to last year, that, that, that law that came in. The other issue, of course, is since then, there has been a murder trial and conviction in Paris. Just to touch on that a minute, Jennifer, I attended that for the newspaper. And I have to say, I was pretty taken aback by the whole process. I've covered numerous trials in this country and what happened in Paris would have been completely alien to any murder trial that occurred here that I have certainly seen here. For example, you had issues like the evidence was largely as a result of statements that had been taken nearly 20 years previously in West Cork under particular circumstances. Uh, there was no compelability of witnesses. There couldn't be because most of them were in Cork and coming from a different jurisdiction. Uh, notice, even within that, in terms of any attempts to get witnesses over, it emerged that they were given very short notice and it just wasn't practical. And one witness she was a former journalist in the Tribune who subsequently a barrister, wrote to the court and explained, you've given me two weeks, this is just not possible to organise or we could have organised a video. But they couldn't do any of that. So th there was that kind of thing. There was also the type of admissibility of evidence. For example, at one point, uh, a friend of the late Miss Duplantier gave evidence that, she that 19 years after the murder, she remembered a conversation with her friend a few days before her death that effectively cast Mr. Bailey in a bad light. Now, being quite frank, I, I doubt if that evidence would have been admissible in an Irish court. And there was another of other aspects to it like that, apart altogether from the fact of the input of the victim's family. And you, you, you can, that's a separate thing. You can argue about that, that that's justified. But just the actual evidence that was presented to the court, I would suggest there's no way in the world it would have passed muster in this country. In terms of any extradition and any idea that um, this is the criminal justice system in another country, whatever you may think of it, would that have any impact on judges in the Irish courts deciding that they couldn't extradite somebody because they operate under a very different system? Well, straight off, you have two competing legal systems. So the Irish legal system is common law. And we would say have the uh, beyond all reasonable doubt, burden uh, and all the things that go with that. 
France, remember, is a civil system. So you were already talking about Napoleonic law. They they have a different way of going about things. So I don't think the Irish courts would want to get into the space of criticising, be it constructive criticism or just criticism anyway of how another country runs its systems. Because if you turned it around, then, it, you know, the French then could start giving out hell for leather about our system if they want it. And I don't think they want to go down that road. The mere fact that it has been said that if he was to be brought to France, there would be a new trial would suggest that do the French know themselves that this would not pass muster with um, an Irish or English audience watching on? It's 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 a very unusual thing to my mind to say because either you have found him guilty by your own process and that process holds water and therefore he is coming over to serve the sentence or it was kind of a show trial to kind of show that we really, really do want him over here and then we'll give him another one when he does come over. So to my mind, on the basis of fairness and ensuring that there is proper levels of scrutiny on the process that did happen, either it is 100% he has been found guilty by the French court, therefore he is going to serve a sentence. And look, at the, at the end of the day, if he goes to France, which I doubt he would, um, of his own volition, he would be put into prison. End of story. So the mere fact that they're turning around and saying, look, there'd be another trial if he came over, wouldn't necessarily give much confidence in the in what in the proceedings that have already happened over there. No, I agree with you, and it, it, it is a highly um, it's a highly unusual situation. For example, just just thinking there's some of the other evidence. A psychologist gave evidence at that trial in Paris that uh, Ian Bailey, to his mind, I think he described him as borderline personality. No, he had never met, not to mind, interviewed Mister Bailey. Yet he felt uh, on the basis of uh, some stuff he had read that he could give that kind of definitive evidence. Another instance, a detective, uh, an investigator in the French police who, who, who had visited West Cork, gave evidence that he spoke to a Garda who told him he believed Mr Bailey was guilty. And this was presented as evidence. Uh, sure, that wouldn't even be allowed in a court in Ireland because that would be hearsay. I mean... If, if somebody did something and walked into the pub and said, Asher, I did it, and then you go in then, you get the fellow who's sitting on the bar stool to come in and say, did he say whether he did it or not? Yeah, he said he did it. That wouldn't hold any water in, a, in an Irish court at all. No, it wouldn't. And it's, it's, I just find it very interesting from that point of view. And to be honest with you, that's what makes this whole case very interesting. What I'm sure Ian Bailey is not somebody who considers it interesting. I'd say he considers it pretty frightening. On the other side... Miss Duplantier's family, whether or not they, their uh, their belief is misplaced or not, they certainly are under the impression that they've been let down by the Irish system and they want this dealt with in France. So it, it is, there's an awful lot of stake um, and there's an awful lot of stake for a lot of people in it. As you say, there is a family out there whose, whose mother, sister is no longer with us that it wasn't through a natural occurrence and they have no idea what actually happened. And at the end of the day, we can't forget Sophie Toscondo Plante's family who are just there and feel abandoned. So I can totally see where they're, where they're coming from, that they, they want answers. They want justice for this. And it's just turning into a, a never-ending legal story over in Ireland. And they're sitting there and they have no answers. That is very true. And Mr. Plantier's son and her some of her siblings, 
and a friend gave evidence at the trial in Paris and her son's evidence in particular, I have to say, was very moving because I think he was about 14 years of age when he lost his mother and it left a massive hole in the man's life and you can completely understand why he is pursuing, as he sees it, justice. But what the ultimate outcome is going to be, we don't know, but it is a case that has gone on for twenty, nearly 24 years and I suspect it has a bit to run yet. But Jennifer Kavna, Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us today and enlightening us on some of the legal aspects to this case. That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can catch us uh, on our download us or listen to us on the usual platforms, including our old friend Spotify, where increasingly I see a few of you are picking up the podcast. You can also contact me on mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at, at MickCliff. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.